On the cover of R. Emmett Turrell Jr.'s memoir is a photo of him holding a three-olive martini. It was obviously his choice and part of a message he chooses to send his readers about his life after 79 years. Bob Tyrrell founded the American Spectator magazine in the autumn of 1967. In the author's bio in the back of the book, it says he has never had another job, though he came terrifyingly close in the late 1960s when the vice president asked him to join his staff. After strenuous negotiations, the vice president settled for Tyrrell as a consultant. After that, the vice president resigned. The vice president was Spiro Agnew. Before we get to this week's episode, we want to take a minute to ask for your help. Your financial support will ensure that C-SPAN can continue to produce podcasts that inform you about national politics, introduce you to the latest nonfiction books, and provide valuable historical context to today's news. Make a donation today and be a part of C-SPAN's future. Visit c-span.org donate. R. Emmett Tyrrell Jr., better known as Bob, why a photograph on your cover with you holding a martini glass with three olives in it? Well, because as I pointed out in the book, uh, I, I, my, my martini was served to me from by Donald, by, by <laughs> Donald uh, Trump. No, no, I was served to me by Don Richard Nixon. And um, I enjoyed it, but uh, that's a long way from where we are today. <laughs> All right, let's start. Give us a somewhat of a detailed story of Ronald Reagan coming to your house for dinner. Well, Ronald Reagan and two hundred and fifty of his closest security people. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I should tell you all of it, but I'll tell you that. Um, he called me during a momentous time for me. I was undergoing a, 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 a divorce. And uh, he announced that he'd come to my house for dinner. I didn't quite know what to do, so I proceeded ahead. And he came to dinner, and my wife was agreeable. And... Uh, he arrived with, as I said, 200 security people, 250 security people in the woods all around the house. And uh, it was pouring rain outside. He came into the house. He walked down into the living room. He looked at me and he frowned and he said, just a minute, I'll, have to, I'll just give me a second. And he left the living room and he came back in and he said, my hearing aids conked out. So he put his hearing aids back in, or he put new batteries in, and we can proceeded with the evening. And he was the first president ever to listen to the music of Frederick the Great. I had music of Frederick the Great playing in the background, and uh, frankly, he had a ball. He had took two screwdrivers to calm him down. He was a real advocate for the music of Frederick the Great, I believe, but I didn't ask him about that. Well, anybody that follows you knows you're conservative, or you can put any label on it you want to. But you had Lally Weymouth in the house with you, and she is the daughter of uh, Catherine Graham. 
uh, or Philip Graham, I'm not sure which, uh, is, who owned the Washington Post, what was she doing there? And she kept telling him to turn the music down. <laughs> well, she's, she's a Philistine. Uh, Ronald Reagan and I were, were, were music lovers. Um, but uh, she was there because she was a friend of mine, and uh, she is a friend of mine. And uh, she gave me some good lines for this book. Well, you know, when you the, the story as you tell in the book, though, is a combination of all these people that came out to your house. Why in the world did the president of the United States need 200 people? And what kind of you said they put telephone lines in the whole thing? What's the background on all that? Well, I, I can only tell you that uh, they, they, they were they disrupted my neighborhood. The whole neighborhood was aware of what was happening. And uh, it was out in McLean. Uh, but um, I don't know when the president goes out. To, I'm told the president travels with an even larger security group today than he did back then. What what, what was your relationship with Ronald Reagan? Well, that's an interesting point. Uh, my inter- my relationship was quite close. I didn't realize how close it was. Only in reviewing this for the, the book did I realize that not just everybody gets to have dinner with the president. Not everybody gets to have lunch with the president. He had me there a lot, and he had me there for a purpose. He wanted the people that were that influenced the culture to influence the culture to the right, not the left. You might remember that FDR uh, moved the, the uh, culture to the right, to the left. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was very adamant about things like this. F, John, John F. Kennedy also was adamant about uh, advancing liberals into the culture. Uh, Ronald wanted to do, Ronald Reagan wanted to do it too, but he failed, and I failed. We we did numerous we had numerous engagements for those during his eight years, uh, which introduced conservatives into the culture, but they didn't take didn't take hold, and that is because the White House had Deaver and Baker and those assistant presidents who much preferred uh, they, they treated us as though we were wild-eyed radicals and they did everything they could to undercut Ronald Reagan on the the uh, culture question and they succeeded one of the people in your book that you have a couple of cutting remarks about is David Gergen who I assume uh, you you is another assistant president you referred to him as an oaf your 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 colleague that you've worked with all these years, Vladi Pachinsky, referred to him all the time as Mr. Potato Head. Why? <laughs> well, he he looked like Mr. Potato Head to, to Vladi and me, and I didn't have much respect for him. So, what is an assistant president? Well, I mean, these people that have almost presidential rank, or at least assume that they have presidential rank. Uh, Ronald Reagan got some things through. He didn't get others. He didn't get the culture question right. And uh, Deaver, I don't know if you remember this story. Deaver, um, Deaver tried to uh, 
go out to defend defended himself as kind of a fancy pants guy, and he uh, he had lectures that he would deliver to people about what kind of a person, what kind of people are right wingers in the culture, and we always came out second rate. He believed he was a real liberal. He was actually nothing but a an assistant president. Why didn't you become an assistant president if you were that close to Ronald Reagan? Well, I didn't want to become an assistant president. I suspect that there was some talk about, in fact, there was. I can't recall what it was right now. I don't think I put it in the book. But there was some interest in me, oh, yes, in uh, taking a position in the government. But I didn't want a position in the government. I wanted to write books and read and and uh, live the life of a thoughtful and intellectual. What do you think is the biggest accomplishment of having a publication that you started back in 1967, surviving all these years? What, 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 have, you, what have you accomplished with this? Well, I've given jobs to probably over 100 writers. Uh, I've advanced ideas that probably wouldn't be advanced if it weren't for the writers I advanced. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's been a very successful experience and I wouldn't trade it for another, I wouldn't trade it to be an assistant president for love or money. You say that you had five or six people that wanted to buy you or move you out of there over the years and they never accomplished it. Give us the back. I know George Gilder at one point did you a big favor. Explain all that and how hard is it to get the money to pay for a publication like this that's a nonprofit? Well, it's a, it's a big job. It was a, lot of, a lot of the work I did was raising money. Uh, but I was glad to do it because I think uh, we those ideas wouldn't be advanced if it weren't for us. And by the way, since Ronald Reagan has disappeared from the scene, and I'm slowly disappearing from the scene. Uh, the right-wing conservative views are not as popular as they used to be with the intelligentsia. What's your take about being an older person? About being an old... <laughs> what, do well, you, what do you think of old age? Actually, I've had a lot of fun. <laughs> I'm one of the few people that can actually brag about having accomplished a great deal in my 80 years in public life. Uh, and I have no complaints at all. Uh, I, I When I wrote this book, I, would, I had a lot of people like Luigi Barzini, Malcolm Muggeridge, and people like that as associates and uh, with me, associated with me. And and every time I'd get up to change, start a chapter, I'd say to myself, well, you're getting in the ring now with Malcolm Muggeridge. Malcolm Muggeridge wrote the greatest memoir in the 20th century, and that comes from John Kenneth Galbraith's review of him. Uh, I think I wrote a better memoir, and you can decide for yourself. But I, I think the difference between Malcolm and me was that Malcolm was often wrong. I was always, almost always right. And I think this memoir is a memoir of a president, of a presidential advisor who got things right. That's me. Who says you were always right? 
Pardon me? Who says you were always right? Well, uh, people that read the book. <laughs> you can decide for yourself. Who do you want to read this book? Well, I, I think that I, I think that the conservatives are reading the book, and I think some liberals should read the book because I don't think I think I have some respect for them that will it will surprise them. Kathleen Kennedy uh, read the book, and was she was she was very surprised at the tone of the book. She's surprised that it's respectful to liberals. I'm I'm not so surprised by that because I I tried to give them a fair shake in the book. Why did you call uh, Mrs. Clinton Hillary Milhouse Clinton? Well, I also called her Bruno. <laughs> I called her a lot of things. Where, where does your dislike for the Clintons start? Well, I suspect it started with his presidency. I didn't know much about him before he was president. But when he was president, he became a, a real phony baloney. And when he lied about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky, is that her name, Monica Lewinsky? I, she was a classy woman uh, in his life. Uh, that's when I really came to dislike him. He tended, to, he continued to lie. He, the Clintons, it's interesting, Hillary and Bill, their lives began with lies. He lied about the draft. She lied about the communists that she worked for out in California, and they proceeded on from there. Uh, I don't. Ha I never had to lie about my life. Uh, I have not. Uh, I have not very little to say about other people lying about. But Bill Clinton's line was extraordinary. Go back to when you mentioned about you going through a divorce with your first wife Judy near the time that Ronald Reagan came to your house. But you also talk about that divorce and why your wife, what, what she thought of you in the process and why she didn't want to be married to you anymore. It kind of explains, it seems to me, a dividing line for you uh, about what you think of yourself and what others might have thought of you. What was the purpose? Well, I, don't, I don't agree with much of what you just, just said. Uh, and I don't think Judy's ever been asked about me. If she has, I don't, I don't know what her answer was. Well, you implied, though, in the book that she didn't want to be a part of your life because you liked being in the spotlight. Am I, am I not right about that? I don't think so. I don't think you're right about that. I mean, she went to the, the, the dinner with the president. She, she went to the White House uh, on, a, on one occasion, at least with me. She never minded the fancy stuff. She, I don't know what, what, I don't really know why she divorced me. But at any rate, I'm very happily married today. I've been married, just celebrated my 25th anniversary. Go back to the Bill Clintons for a minute. You tell a story about a dinner at the Jockey Club. Yeah, well, we were sitting at the Jockey Club having dinner, uh, my daughter and, and I. And then he came with his entourage, and he was having dinner a few tables away. So I thought of the, I'd offer him a bottle of champagne. And he t accepted the bottle of champagne and said he wanted to come over and say hello, or he wanted me to come over and say hello to him after he'd done that. Well, that was typical of Bill Clinton. 
Uh, that's the way he was. Uh, people from Arkansas told me he would always the per, the person in the room that disliked him the most. He would glom onto them and try to change their point of view. So I wasn't surprised when he did that. And uh, and when it, when it was time for me to finish dinner, the, uh, dinner, I told Agnes I was ready to accept the president's congratulations or whatever he was going to do. And he came over and talked to me about various things. And I asked him, well, what did you think of one of the piece that we ran in the American Spectator? And he burst out. He was terribly vehement with me. And I said, well, Luna, look, why don't you just calm down and go over there and sit down and we'll talk about this later. And to my astonishment, the president of the United States took my advice and went over there and sat down. <laughs> and and uh, it, it was a great moment for me. I had the president in the palm of my hand. What article was were you, were the two of you talking about? Mean Air, the Mean Airport article. What is that about? And why didn't it get more? You say it didn't get very much publicity. Why not? Uh, why not? I guess you—you you got to ask the, the the liberal press why they won't, won't were reluctant to report on us. Um, but that that story and the Trooper Gate story were momentous stories, and uh, the the people in Washington didn't even know about it much of the time. What was the Mina Airport story? It was the, that drugs were coming. Drugs were being flown in to Mean Airport in, uh, in Arkansas. In Arkansas, and the Arkansas State Trooper that found out about it was very angry and came to, uh, back to Bill and said, "You know what they're doing? They're they're taking drugs. They're selling drugs. They're taking drugs and selling it to the people of Arkansas. You want you want whatever you want." And Bill said, oh, that's what that was Lassiter's deal. That was Lassiter's deal. Well, uh, Lassiter was one of Bill Clinton's close uh, supporters. Uh, and I've come to think that possibly Clinton and Clinton claimed that he knew about the flights in and out of Maine Airport. I'm now starting to believe I am have been starting to believe 20 years ago that he probably didn't know about it. Uh, and this was the first time he heard about it, and he was trying to show he's such a big wheel that he knew all about it. Uh, it boomeranged for him to, to claim that he knew about that that uh, that behavior of the Arkansas, of the, uh, the, uh, the flight, the, the pilot by the name of Barry Seal. There's a movie out about it, uh, and of course it completely... Uh, rewrites what is known about Bimean Airport. David Brock, article called, long article called, his cheating heart. When did that? When did that happen? When did you put that in your magazine? How uh, many? How many years ago? Oh, early on, ninety three, ninety four. I what, can't tell. You. How long was it? It was plenty long. What was it? Donald, uh, what? What was it? What What was the article about? And 
And the article was the article blew the lid off of Bill Clinton being as pure as the driven snow. Uh, it made it made it very clear that Arkansas. It was this this testimony of I believe four Arkansas troopers who claimed that they had set Bill up with women, uh, and no one disputes that today. When we ran the ran the piece. Uh, it was shocking, and the people, it, it, it's a good thing that we got the uh, Los Angeles Times to also run a similar piece, uh, but it didn't put Bill in a very good light, and it set the stage for Monaco. Monaco, is that her name? Mo- Monica. Monica. Monica, how strange. <laughs> how would I get that wrong? Uh, at any rate, Monica or Monaco uh, was would turn was turned over. It was was uh, ex- exposed by that's that uh, the 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 uh, what is it called when you're asking people when you're asking people who are related to it. Uh, at any rate, it that's where Monaco was revealed, and then the in the process of. Uh, that's that story. So David Proc eventually flipped on the whole thing, went to work for the Liberal Democrats, started Media Matters. Why? What happened to David Brock from your perspective? He loved money. People said, oh, well, he was a homosexual and he was discovered as a homosexual. That was nonsense. We knew he was a homosexual. I mean, there are people's sexual relations are are their own business, none of my business. But uh, he he loved money and he made a hell of a lot of money on that endeavor on us and a hell of a lot of money in and uh, as the time went on, the Media Matters has been a, 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 a very promising and very profitable endeavor for Donald, for uh, David. What do you think of today's media world? Well, uh, it's a good thing that, that uh, there are some conservatives out there. I think there's more conservatives today than there were when I started years ago. But we can't have, we can't get too many. I mean, there should be, it should be the, the, uh, the, the, it should be a 50-50 relationship. Should be 50% conservatives, 50% liberals. And that's what I'm waiting for. We did some good in in bringing our, our brand of conservatism into the, um, the arena, but we can do a lot more, and I'm hoping that we will do a lot more. You use a word throughout your book that you say actually the definition in the Urban Dictionary came from you. The word is culture smog. What is culture smog? Well, culture smog is the culture of our of our highbrow culture, uh, which is completely con- controlled by the liberal, the left wing, uh, and that's that's got to change. If you read the American Spectator, you'll see very little uh, that we agree on with with, the, with regard to the culture, and that's the way it ought to be. There ought to be more people that think and write the way we do. 
When you first came to Washington, you got to know Meg Greenfield. You ended up writing a column in the Washington Post. How did that happen? Well, I guess we we had she in the book. I point out that she was a a wonderful lady, and that she liked a lot of my writing. And she said to me one night over drinks, "Why aren't you? Don't you have a syndicated column?" I said, "Well, if I had one, would you run it?" She said, "Sure." So that's that was the beginning of my career as a as a. Uh, conservative as a, a conservative writer in a liberal paper how long did it last and why did they drop your column well it lasted for I'm, I'm I don't recall how long it lasted you know it was a long time ago but uh, they, I'm not sure they ever thought they dropped me but they did they stopped they ran it less and less frequently and so I turned to the Washington Times and the Washington Times is delighted and they've been delighted ever since. How did you go about writing this book, and did you keep a diary over the years? Yes, I kept a diary. Yes, I kept notes, and I wrote it from the diary and the notes and from people I talked to that knew what I I was up to, and I'm very proud of the book. I think that uh, I got in the ring with Malcolm Muggeridge time and time again, and I think I beat Malcolm much of the time. He, he he made lots of funny jokes about Lady Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. I didn't think they were funny people, and I wrote that way. And I think that uh, I think that in, the, in terms of accuracy, I out, out I outpunched uh, Malcolm. You do say at one point in the book, "There's no replacement for intellectual reviews." Yeah, um, and that's one thing that uh, I I think that it's only in intellectual reviews do people get a chance to write what they really think, uh, to to deal in detail with the questions of the day. And that's what I mean by that. And I think it's true. Um, the, The articles that are published in on, online aren't as in-depth as the articles that are published uh, at hard copy. Why do you think that's the case? I don't think the American people, <clears throat> left, left-wingers and right-wingers, appreciate careful thought as, much, as they used to. Uh, look at the newsstands. There are almost no magazines on the newsstands today. There are spectators one of the few that's at least maintained a presence. Um, and I think that that will change. I think that the, the hard copy magazine will be back someday, but it's going to take a while. What's the status of the American spectator today? You, you keeping your head above water financially? Very much so. Uh, and uh, we're, we've got a very prominent presence on the on the web, uh, and I think we've we've got a, a monthly that's out four times a year. I believe it'll, it'll be possible to come out more often than that, uh, and uh, we'll, we're trying to maintain our usual standards of laughing at, at Washington, and we have a good belly laugh every few days. What was the Danny? Quail 
reader. <laughs> well, people will have to read the... I can't tell you the whole story behind Danny Quayle Reader, but we decided when Danny Quayle said to a liberal news source um, I, that he liked the New Republic and didn't like the, the uh, American Spectator and National Review, it, it, we were provoked into writing the, Dan, Dan, the Danny Quayle Reader, a reader that Danny would that the the, the stupid Danny would uh, appreciate and and it's and and I never have told anyone this but you will break this story today. Uh, Danny Quayle, uh, well, the, the Danny Quayle reader was actually written by Vic Gold. That's a that's a first for you, Brian. Vic Gold wrote the Danny Quayle reader. For those who don't remember the name, who was Vic Gold? Vic Gold was a, um, a close buddy of of uh, George H. W. Bush. So he did he write it when he was working for him? Uh, no, uh, and uh, that was uh, that was a great story in itself. Explain, uh, over the years, you've had some very well-known board members, Bob Novak, Gene Kirkpatrick, General Westmoreland, and others. How does that work with a nonprofit? Well, it was perfectly agreeable. Uh, with a, uh, the, the, we never published anything that was out of line. And uh, we also had Bill Simon on our board. And today we've got uh, Rob, Robert Luddy, Bob Luddy on our board. Uh, I'm very proud of our board. It's been a very, very significant board. Why do people want to serve on a board for a nonprofit like yours? What's the motivation? Well, I think a lot of conservatives believe, as I do, that we've got to get more and more conservatives in the, the uh, culture, and and uh, and they were they they were helping me, and they are helping me create a, a bipartisan uh, conservative, bipartisan movement in the culture. And uh, we're doing a good job, I think. Give us your take on Donald Trump. Well, that's... Uh, I thought Donald Trump was a wonderful president for the first three years. Uh, for the, the fourth year, he was he he showed he was undone by his ability to swat back. He enjoyed swatting back at the liberals that attacked him, and that's what I think messed him up. Uh, and I hope he'll show more eagerness to fight to implement pay, pay, uh, policy if he if he's reelected if he's elected. I would like to see him advance policy for the conservatives. As of right now, who will you support for the presidency next time? I'm not. I want to see the rest of the race. You say that in your book that Donald Trump eventually came through on all his major promises to the electorate. 
I think he did, yes. What about all the things that didn't happen that he promised? Like well, he, he got... Uh, he didn't have an opportunity to serve a second term. He's hoping to have... One of the things he should be making clear is that uh, he's got more to do. He hasn't answered that question yet. So, in other words, you think he needed a second term to build the border wall? He never got that done, and the Mexican government wasn't going to pay for it either. That was his big promise from the start. Yes. He, that's that's at the top of his list next time around. So do you think he do you think he'll get elected? Well, I know all I know is what the polls say, and the polls say he's running ahead of Joe Biden. What do you? Needless to say, and running ahead of every Republican in the race. Do you know him? I was one of the first people to support him, Brian. Yes, I know him. I liked him. He changed when he ran for when he became president. After three or four, after three, perhaps four years, he he was frankly, I think he was punch drunk. He got got uh, he threw too many punches. Uh, now I don't know if he's going to ever come back, but. I liked him, and I like him now today. What's your opinion of the different cases in the courts right now against him? I don't. I'll tell you. I stay away from that. My wife, she knows about the courts. She, she was a prosecutor. Uh, I wait for her to pronounce what she th- thinks of the court. Has she had any opinion of all the different? I like there's 91 different counts against him and all the the six or seven different uh, court cases. All I know is that she takes she likes Nikki Haley, and that's about all I know. What is terrorism? <laughs> it's a joke, <laughs> Brian. I can't tell you. I'm not sure what it is, <laughs> but it's a joke. You uh, often in your book use big words. Or better, better stated, <clears throat> from my perspective, words that you don't see every day. And I know you know you do this. And how do you do it? And do you do it on purpose? Well, yeah, because I frankly like big words in proper when properly understood. And I think some of the big words I've used have been enlightening to people. I remember I got a call from. Conrad Black one day saying, Bob, what does glabrous mean? I said, glabrous? It means bald-headed. <laughs> oh, I, I think Conrad said, well, thank God I don't suffer, suffer that illness. What's a calipigeon uh, or pigeon cutie? Calipigeon, calipigeon beauty? Yes. Well, a woman with a well-rounded rump. You, don't ask any further now. If you don't know what calipigian means, I don't want you to ask any other any other questions about my my use of large words. Well, how often do you see people using that word? <clears throat> well, uh, I you, know some women would sure would like to be able to use that word. Would you use it in a speech? <laughs> um, that's a good idea, Brian. <laughs> Thank you. What's 
What is escortatory? Exhort, well, something that exhorts people. A speech that exhorts people. It's exhortatory. What's schaden farming? Not schadenfreude, but schaden farming. Well, that's a a word of my own choosing, my own making up, my own... It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, if I recall, Al Gore, schadenfreude, it's a man that, that, uh, that travels the world giving speeches to, that apply, on the, that, uh, that take uh, into, <laughs> try to, he travels the world using language uh, that tries to pr- provoke concern for your fellow man and things like that. Uh, it's it's my own word, and it hasn't caught on, so you don't feel too bad. You um, talk about Bob Woodward and your old friend Bill Casey. First of all, for those who have never heard of Bill Casey, who was he? When did you first meet him? Well, he's head of the CIA, and I met him, oh, five years, ten years before he ever took office. You talk about him coming out to Indiana where you first started. That's right. What would, what was he doing at the time, and why was he interested in what you were doing? Well, he, he was he, he was interested. He was giving a speech at Indiana University, and he wanted to meet me before he gave the speech. And so he, he plopped himself down in my office and waited to see me. And he was a great man. He was one of the people that contributed to Ronald Reagan's victory in the Cold War. And what's the story that you write about in the book about Bob Woodward and the hospital visit? About Bob Woodward and what? And the hospital visit when Bill Casey was in the hospital. Uh, Bob Woodward said that he came to the hospital when Bill Casey was sick. That's that's right. And talk to him and you suggest in your book that's not a true story I think that's, that's right I don't believe it is I spoke to Bill rather regularly and he couldn't utter a word of English he couldn't speak his throat was paralyzed and no one's ever t- taken me up d- 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 denied the truth of what I say what's your favorite chapter in this book the last chapter why because it's proof positive, it seems to be, that I believe in God and God's worth understanding. And I'm taking Pascal's bet. I'll bet that if you live a decent life, you'll go to heaven. As George Nathan said late in his life, he was asked why he, an old pal of of Benkin, would become a Catholic. And George George turned and said, "Well, because I believe in God, and I'm all, I've always liked pleasure, and that's the pleasure, pleasant place to, for us all to end up in heaven." Is this your last book? I don't know. If you had to write another book right now, do you have a, a subject that you always wanted to write about that you haven't? No, I don't. 
R. Emmett Terrell Jr. The name of the book is How Do We Get Out of Here? Thank you very much for taking your time. Good to be with you, Brian. Good to see you. Good luck. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.